Hi, everyone. I'm Nathan, the host of this podcast. And tonight, I'm honored to be joined by Professor Aaron Hutchinson. Professor Hutchinson is an assistant professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. During the 2020 to 2021 academic year, she was a postdoctorate fellow at the Harvard University Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies. Graduating with her PhD in history in May 2020, her dissertation received the 2021 Harold K. Gross Dissertation Prize from the Harvard History Department and was a finalist for the 2021 Cohen Tucker Dissertation Prize awarded by the Association for Slavic, East European, and Eurasian Studies. Professor Hutchinson's current project, The Cultural Politics of the Nation After Stalin, 1953 to 1991, explores how intellectuals, especially those of rural origins, sought to transform cultural understandings of the nation after the death of Stalin. Her research examines writers from across the Soviet Union with a particular focus on the Soviet republics of Russia, Ukraine, Armenia, and Moldova. In other words, she's an expert. And once again, today's podcast will be discussing the Russian-Ukraine crisis, viewing the event through both a contemporary and a historical lens. Great. Hey, Thank Professor. you for the very kind introduction, Nathan. <laughs> well, um, how are you doing? It's fantastic to have you on this podcast. Um, you know, doing as well as can be expected. Uh, for those of us who care about this region, of course, it's a really dark time. Um, but uh, at least, you know, we, we were getting some warmer weather here in Boulder and, and we can uh, go, go hiking, get outside to distract ourselves from, from the news every once in a while. Yeah, well, thank you for taking the time. I have a very busy schedule to hop on this podcast. And to start, I just wanted to ask you the question that we ask all of our esteemed guests. And if you could have a dinner for two with any figure in history, who would it be and why? This is a really fascinating question. Um, as a researcher, I often try to interview people who were uh, sort of witnesses to the historical events that I study um, in the late Soviet period. So I, I feel like I would, I would feel obligated to use this to further my research. So I think the most, perhaps the most uh, interesting person for me to speak with, and also one of the more pleasant ones would be uh, the Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, who, uh, as your readers might know, came to power in the Soviet Union in 1985 and implemented a lot of different reforms. Um, Ultimately, things sort of began to spiral out of his control and, and the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. And I think it'd be really interesting to hear um, his perspective uh, on the conflict and especially ask him questions about um, the role of um, uh, how he understood the role of non-Russians uh, in the Soviet Union um, and, uh, you know, whether he uh, anticipated that uh at the time, you know, that, that at the time that sort of he was trying to implement his reforms, that uh, different nationalist movements would ultimately help um, cause the collapse. So I think that would be really interesting. Also, Mikhail Gorbachev seems like one of the more pleasant Soviet leaders I could have a meal with. I, I think the other one I would probably want to have a meal with is uh, the Soviet leader of the 50s and 60s, Nikita Khrushchev, 
but um, he is <laughs> sort of famous for having a bit of a, um, uh, I don't know, a sort of earthy personality. So I don't know if that might be more entertaining than Gorbachev. Gorbachev seems very polite. <laughs> well, her, him, Gorbachev, and his policy of glasnost might be something that we'd want to see repeat itself in the current situation. <laughs> for sure. For well, sure. That gives us a really good segue into um, perhaps starting with some historical context. So can you tell us a bit about the history of the Russian-Ukraine relations during the period of the Russian Empire? Yeah, that's a really important um, historical background to the conflict, especially because a lot of this history has been very specifically evoked by um, Russian President Vladimir Putin in um, his justification for the invasion of Ukraine um, in February. So um, one you know, thing to know kind of about, about the shared history of Russians, Ukrainians, as well as Belarusians, is that they all trace their sort of historical origins back to um, a state that was called Kievan Rus that existed between the 9th and the um, 13th centuries. Uh, and it was an East Slavic speaking, um, uh, uh, it was an Orthodox, um, an Orthodox state. Um, and so, you know, all of these peoples kind of um, think of that as having been kind of the origin of their own, their own nations. Um, now in the 17th and 18th centuries, um, over time, I should I should add, um, Kievan Rus. The state was essentially destroyed by the Mongol invasion in the um, uh, in the middle of the 13th century, and so uh, ultimately the lands of Kievan Rus ended up in different in different empires. So uh, Ukraine and and Belarus, these lands were um, became part of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. Um, in the east, uh, the territory of today's Russia was under Mongol occupation for 200 years. And then eventually um, uh, they uh, were able to liberate themselves. And, and then that was kind of the core of the, of the formation of the Russian Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries, the Russian Empire was looking to acquire territory to the West, was looking to take lands from the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. And so this um, idea that uh, the people who lived in the territory of, of today's Ukraine and Belarus were really their brothers, were really... Um, you know, sort of part of the same nation as them. We see these ideas start to emerge in the 17th and 18th century in the context of, of Russian leaders wanting to take this territory. And so that became a justification for it. Um, uh, in the 19th century, that solidified into um, this uh, very uh, explicit state ideology that the Russians... Um, the great Russians, as they call themselves, the white Russians or the Belarusians and the little Russians, the Ukrainians, were all part of this same Russian nation um, and should all be unified under the same state. Uh, now, you know, starting in the first half of the 19th century, you started to see Ukrainian historians, intellectuals, poets um, say, hey, wait a minute. We here in Ukraine don't see ourselves as, as the same as Russians. Our language is different. Our history is different. Our culture is different. So this movement emerged in the 1840s and the Russian imperial state viewed it as a threat. They viewed it as a threat to the integrity of the empire. 
Um, so they started to repress Ukrainian language and culture, actually banning publications in Ukrainian language in the 1860s and 70s, a ban that stayed in place basically up until the year 1905. Um, but this, um, this belief that many Ukrainian intellectuals had that they really were part of a different nation didn't go away. In fact, it just became stronger. Um, and so, um, yeah, that's kind of, you know, some of this, uh, this conflict, you know, it's, it's sort of reminiscent of the 19th century, especially the rhetoric of Vladimir Putin, which he constantly kind of evokes um, these ideas that uh, Russians and Ukrainians aren't really different. Our languages aren't really different. Our cultural, our cultures aren't really different. But um, I think that again, as we saw in the 19th century, there's a lot of, a lot of Ukrainians, in fact, the vast majority who don't accept this. So um, that's kind of some of the sort of history of the Russian empire and how it pertains to the current conflict. Yeah, I guess the claim that Russia, Ukraine and Russia are of the same nation has been one that has been continuously pushed and emphasized by the Kremlin. But as Dr. Rory Finin on the Harvard um, emergency panel talked about that, this is a pr- this is a misconception that they're actually more so competitors. And Ukraine has, as you talked about, developed this sense of self-determination. I think the term they use is voilia with a history oh, yeah, of, yeah. Freedom. <laughs> of avoiding both influence from the West, like Poland in the past and to their East, which is of course, Russia. Um, a big reason Putin gives for this war is that there's actually discrimination towards these ethnic Russians in Ukraine. To what extent is this justified? Um, I think that this is largely a rhetorical move on the part of the Kremlin. I think it doesn't actually reflect the realities on the ground in Ukraine. Um, so uh, having like uh, lived in Ukraine, I conducted research there. You know, it's a very, very bilingual country, um, a country where in the capital city of Kiev, you can, you know, you can go to the pharmacy and you can order, you know, order some drugs from the pharmacist and, um, and you speak Russian and she'll be speaking Ukrainian and it's sort of not a problem. Like there's just, it's just totally bilingual society where people switch back and forth between those languages um, and largely without any issues. Um, you know, historically, as you know, Ukraine became independent, um, you know, there was some sort of pushback on Russian speakers with the Ukrainian language becoming more dominant as Ukraine became an independent nation. But by and large, you know, most people my age and younger grew up in independent Ukraine and they learned Ukrainian in schools and they're perfectly capable of speaking both Ukrainian and Russian. Um, so my Ukrainian, one of my Ukrainian language tutors was is actually a native Russian speaker, but she is a linguist, learned Ukrainian in school, speaks it perfectly well, and was totally capable of teaching it to me, even though she's a native Russian speaker. So, um, I think that a lot of, um, you know, certainly there are, you know, some complaints every once in a while on the part of Russian speakers or ethnic Russians that, um, you know, the Ukrainian language is becoming more dominant, but, the reality is, is this is a really bilingual society. And for the vast majority of the time, this is not a problem. So um, certainly I have many Russian speaking friends and ethnic Russians that I know from Ukraine. Um, this idea that they're somehow suffering from intense persecution or anything like that just seems to me to be a total myth. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and I think that the sort of irony of this is that with launching this invasion, many of the ter- much, many of the territories where this war is being fought were 
we're seeing, you know, Russian military dropping bombs. This is about the Russian speaking areas. City of Kharkov is being attacked. You know, in the south, a lot of these a lot of these cities along the um, along um, the Black Sea coast are mostly Russian speaking, just like Kharkov. And they're seeing people, native Russian speakers are being killed. Um, and, uh, it, it's just, I, you know, to claim that these people are discriminated against. And so you're liberating them and then to drop bombs on their cities. Like this is just a totally contradictory policy. It doesn't make any sense. Definitely the horrors that are going on in the violence is not something that is morally even acceptable, but to play a bit of devil's advocate on the podcast, another reason that people point to for this war is that NATO was created as a security net to hold in check the Soviet Union's power. However, even after the USSR's collapse, NATO has kept on expanding, actually adding its newest member of North Macedonia in 2020. Could this have prompted the belligerents? Yeah, I think that certainly... Um, the Russian president feels that um, NATO expansion is, um, you know, a threat to Russia. Um, a couple important things that we have to take into account here um, is that one of the reasons that NATO has been expanding into Eastern Europe is that um, many of the nations in Eastern Europe are demanding it. Um, you know, Nations um, like, for example, the former Soviet republics of the, ba the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, very much wanted NATO expansion um, as their for their own security. So um, NATO sort of has been put in a position where um, certainly there's a desire for NATO to expand, but like if we go back to like the Bush administration. But this is also something that's being prompted by the people in the region who do not feel secure who feel that they are vulnerable to Russian invasion. So there's there's that element of a conflict um, that has to be taken into account. It's not just like two sides, right? But there's also the, the, the voices of Eastern Europeans who feel threatened. Um, not every Eastern European person favors NATO expansion, of course, but um, in, you know, but a, a lot of the expansion was prompted by these states saying they wanted to be part of NATO. Um, in terms of the immediate sort of background of this conflict, it's, um, it's a bit puzzling why why now? Because the push for NATO expansion happened under the administration of George W. Bush. Um, that is to say many decades ago at this point. Um, and Ukraine was offered potentially a path to NATO membership. But with the um, conflict that happened between Russia and Ukraine in um, 2014, where Russian forces occupied um, the Crimea and also um, help support a separatist movement in the east of the country, you know, NATO is never going to accept as a member any country with ongoing territorial disputes because that would that would require under the NATO treaty for them to intervene immediately if they accepted that country. So really the prospect of Ukraine joining NATO was certainly a, a distant one in part due to Russia's own actions. So it, it's a little bit, I think, disingenuous to say that, that NATO expansion caused this conflict because the NATO expansion has really been stalled, especially, you know, Ukraine's possible um, accession to NATO, uh, you know, is not something that was going to happen anytime in the near future, given the ongoing territorial disputes. So I think it's a little bit, we have to look beyond that to, to understand what's going on here. Mm -hmm. Well, if NATO, which 
seems to be the player that is most likely to get involved is also unwilling to take direct action in terms of military support. Are tariffs really going to be effective in disincentivizing Putin? Because even over the last few days and weeks, the ruble has not stopped depreciating yet. It doesn't, we haven't seen any signs of this war coming to an end. Yeah, I think there's um, a lot of questions about whether sanctions really work. Um, I think that uh, given NATO, NATO's leadership is very uh, hesitant to be drawn into this conflict because seeing that um, a confrontation between NATO and Russia would would probably lead to a, a wider war with just devastating consequences. So, um, but in order to show that they don't approve, you know, they have implemented sanctions that are really almost unprecedented in history. Um, that um, I think we're only seeing the beginning of um, really the ways in which the Russian economy is going to be totally upended um, by these sanctions. Um, you know, their connections to the international economy are being severed. People are talking about things like, will there be a Russian aviation industry, you know, in three weeks when, you know, due to, um, due to the sanctions, things like that. So I think we're only starting to see the beginning of it, but um, at the same time, um, it's uh, a little bit unclear whether this is actually going to change the position of Vladimir Putin, who is fairly insulated from um, these uh, the, the economic effects that are going to be borne really by the Russian population. So we've seen some efforts to put pressure on the Russian elite through things like the confiscation of yachts of oligarchs that are that are in Europe and things like that. But um, it's hard to say that it, it's always hard to say whether this is going to ultimately change the behavior of the Russian leadership, which due to its sort of wealth and power can still remain, you know, fairly insulated from these in a way that ordinary Russians are not. Mm -hmm. Then if so, are there any additional steps that the international community can and would be feasible for them to take? Yeah, I, I, I think that, we've sort of seen um, to some extent, like that there's, there's just a limit if you're not willing to commit troops um, and, and risk a confrontation with Russia, then, um, you know, there's a limit to really what native can do um, and the international community at large. I think there've been, you know, all these moves to sort of economically and diplomatically isolate Russia. It's unclear whether those are going to have an effect there's also some efforts to sort of strike at the kind of heart of the Russian budget, which is to say it's revenue from oil and gas, which the you know a Russian state is highly dependent on. And Europe is one of the main purchasers of that oil and gas. So there are there have been discussions among um, the main countries that buy a lot of Russian gas. Can they reduce their dependency on on Russian um, oil and gas imports? Uh, you know, that's more of a long term thing. Um, and it, it might have an effect if it was able to be actually, you know, if they're able to find other sources of, 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 um, of energy, but, uh, it was also a question, could Russia just then go and turn around and sell that, those, um, that oil and gas to someone else. Um, so that's the sort of last, I think, remaining, uh, amount of leverage that, that you can see from European states. And there's a question of whether that, 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 that that can even be sort of implemented. Yeah. Um, although I also believe that it'd be effective. It's like 
hurting the Russians, but also hurting themselves. I think like Germany, especially Olaf Scholz, part of his hesitance to condemn this war or be very vocal about it is their dependence on Nord Stream 2 and the gas and energy that comes from Russia. Um, yeah, there's um, like a very long standing economic, um, I'm forgetting the word that comes from, <laughs> comes from biology, um, symbio economically symbiotic relationship between Europe and Russia in terms of oil and gas going back to really like the Brezhnev era in the Soviet Union. So um, it's hard to, it's hard for both parties because both parties are dependent on each other to sort of extricate themselves from this economic relationship. Mm -hmm. Well, Going back to learning from history, um, Russian human rights activists and former world chess champion Gary Kasparov described the situation as the first stage of World War III. Is that fair, given what we know from history? Um, I think, you know, Gary Kasparov is a really harsh critic of Putin's administration, has been for a long time. So I'm not surprised to see this level of rhetoric from him. Um, you know, whether... It, it, certainly there's the potential for this to be a prelude to a larger conflict. Um, there's, uh, there's just, uh, you know, during wartime, um, it just lots of unexpected things happen. And um, especially with Russian airstrikes hitting Ukrainian military bases right on the border with Poland, there's really always the threat that, um, you know, uh, that NATO um, could be drawn into this conflict. Um, if the conflict escalates, for example, if tactical nuclear weapons are used um, against Ukraine, things like that, you know, there's just so many opportunities for this to escalate. Um, so I think that, you know, right now we're not seeing this, you know, leading into World War III, but something could happen that could change the calculus totally. So it's not, unfortunately, it's not ruled out a wider war. Mm -hmm. I Certainly think, it's been destabilizing. Yeah, I think both um, President Zelensky has talked about how he thinks that after, um, if Putin wins this war in Ukraine, um, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia might be next. And President Biden has vocally said that he's read all of Putin's writings and that Ukraine, he has much larger ambitions than Ukraine. He wants to, in fact, reestablish the former Soviet Union. That's what this is about, to quote him. Um, if so, are there any historical events that you think can draw strong parallels if World, War, if World Wars may not be the best um, example to this current conflict? Uh, you know, to me, one of the important historical parallels that immediately jumps out is the U.S. occupation of Iraq. Um, you know, so... Uh, the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, thought they might be greeted as liberators. That isn't what happened. Instead, we saw um, the development of um, a prolonged insurgency and um, a, a, brutal, um, a brutal war that, that dragged on for many years. Um, that seems to be some of the situation that, um, that Russia is going to be in if um, if it attempts to occupy Ukraine, as it does seem like it may be trying to do, um, you know, uh, Russia is going to find very few allies 
uh, when and they attempt to occupy Ukraine. And Ukraine is a much larger territory than um, population-wise and, and geographically than Iraq. And the Russian military isn't as strong as the U.S. military was when it invaded Iraq. So, um, and we saw how the, how the war in Iraq turned into a disaster um, and the occupation. So, um, I think that uh, that historical precedent is something that the Russian leadership should really be looking at. Um, in addition to their own their own experiences um, with the invasion of Afghanistan um, in the 1980s, which was also um, something that um, you know was an attempted occupation that just led to a whole host of problems, was very unsuccessful, and ultimately played a role in the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So if we do have access to history and us, we as students, politicians, and professionals have the opportunity to examine the past and its successes and also its failures, why do we continuously seem to be in this cyclical version of history? Oh, <laughs> I think I, if I had the answer to that question, I might be in the philosophy department as well as the history department. Um, you know, I think, uh, um, you know, uh, on the one hand, we've seen um, the Russian leadership constantly looking back and sort of harkening back to this 19th century Russian empire and, and trying to get it back. Um, it seems that um, instead of understanding, you know, these 21st century ideas of democracy and self-determination, um, instead, the Russian leadership is wanting to go back to the 19th century where we simply have um, imperial rule um, and might makes right in this, in this, uh, in the territory of Ukraine. Um, so I think in some sense, um, you know, it's, it seems like Russia is sort of locked in this sort of historical pattern. And um, unfortunately um, for those of us who study this region, I had hoped that some of these uh, historical patterns could be broken, but that hasn't been what's what's happened, unfortunately, with the with the Russian leadership. Mm-hmm. We've touched on this throughout the entire podcast about rhetoric and language playing a role in the situation, and each state and situation has its own form of this. For this conflict, which is, as you discussed, isn't a new one, how has that rhetoric evolved and is playing a role currently? I think um, definitely we've seen a war of words um, uh, that has been part of this conflict. I mean, what it strikes me is that, again, these these two sides are living in totally different rhetorical universes, right, where we have, um, you know, the Russian president um, appealing to these ideas that were pro- prominent during the late 19th century um, and kind of operating on a totally different wavelength than um, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who um, has been really effective in framing the conflict as a as a conflict about um, freedom and Ukraine's democratic choice. I think in the course of you know the two or so weeks that this war has been going on, uh, Zelensky has been really successful in getting Europeans to think about Ukrainians, perhaps for the first time, as really being a part of Europe. Um, and I think that Zelensky um, has really constantly with his rhetoric, he talks about democracy, freedom and European values. And he's really been um, able to get, I think, a lot more um, 
support for his country because he has successfully um, kind of uh, been able to uh, get European leaders to believe and understand that this is, and, and as well as European populations and 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 the population of the U.S. and the U.S. government as well, this is a conflict over um, Ukraine's ultimate right to sovereignty and freedom. So uh, I think that we just have to- like two totally different rhetorical universes here. One that's about European values and freedom, and the other that's about um, you know basically imperial. Uh, imperial history and imperial domination. Mm-hmm. Rhetoric on um, certainly first um, President Zelensky has even become this sort of symbol for freedom and courage in Ukraine with his decision to stay, but also how it actually plays a role with the international community because Turkey, who actually, if they call this a war, which I think they've been a little bit hesitant to do, have a responsibility and right to close down the Bosphorus Strait, which would actually make an impact on the situation with military maneuvers, etc. And to end on more of a note of hope, you have friends in Ukraine who are um, hopefully staying safe, but have certainly been affected by this conflict. What is the role that everyday citizens can take in alting this current war? And what can we even as teenagers globally do to help in this effort? Um, that's a that's a great question, one that I get a lot. Um, so uh, I think that, you know, unfortunately, there's really very little we can we can do as um, citizens of the world to um, convince um, the Russian government to stop this invasion of Ukraine. But I do think that um, it's possible to show support for the Ukrainian people. So um you know, I have been um, personally, you know, sending my um, my donations to um, work, uh, an organization that helps um, that aids Ukrainian refugees in Moldova um, called Moldova for Peace. Um, and I think that's a very it's, it's a, one way that we can help some of the people who've been affected by this conflict. Um, you know, the, yesterday, I um, you know, there's all of these sort of little ways in which we can. Um, support people who are being affected. So yesterday, um, I heard from my mother about a bakery in um, Ukraine that has a connection to a bakery in my hometown, Arizona, and um, you know was and this Ukrainian bakery in Kiev has been you know feeding people for free basically during the duration of this conflict. And so you know I, I sent a little bit of money their way to sort of help um, help people who are staying in Kiev and trying to survive. So. Um, you know, there's a lot of international organizations now working, organizations like UNICEF and the UN um, Foundation for Children. Um, so uh, unfortunately, there's not much more we can do um, besides sending you know, some financial support. But uh, a lot of that really goes a long way for people who have whose lives have been totally upended by this conflict. Yeah, well, um, if you could pass me perhaps the link later for Moldova for Peace, um, it'd be something that I'd want to publish on the podcast website as Definitely. well. It currently has links to UNICEF, Doctors Without Borders, and the Red Cross for any donations and financial support that our community can give to help with this conflict. And going back to the um, rapid response panel held by Harvard the other week, which is certainly something to go check out if to learn more about this conflict. If there's one takeaway that us and as everyday citizens can make our contributions to this event, it's to keep 
this conflict front and center in the media to not let it die down and let it get out of the public's eye because part of the most effective way we're actually influencing government decisions right now is through putting public pressure on them. Yeah, definitely. And um, I, you know, I personally in the last week called my senators uh, in Colorado to express my opinions and, um, you know, communicating with our elected officials is something that we can also do to sort of keep um, uh, make sure that uh, people know that we care about this issue and keep talking about it, um, you know, because I think there there's always a danger that, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, sort of attention moves on. But, uh, you know, I think it's really important to continue to, uh, to, to continue to draw attention to this and the horrible tragedy that has been unfolding in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And finally, are there any additional experts for our passionate audiences to read about or even maybe reach out to to learn more about this conflict? Yeah. So as a history professor, uh, one of my main main things I do is I recommend um, books for people to read uh, in order to get a better sense of what's going on in the world um, and its history. So so a couple that I I can recommend, um, uh, there's a Canadian-Ukrainian professor by the name of Serhii Yakelchik, uh, who has written a short book that's a very good little introduction to what's going on um, called Ukraine, What Everyone Needs to Know. Um, he also has a sort of like uh, sort of deeper history of Ukraine that you can check out. Um, and also there is uh, the um, the Harvard uh, professor of Ukrainian history, Serhii Plohi, has also um, has a book called The Gates of Europe um, that is uh, a great introduction to the longer history of Ukraine, which is really fascinating and, and interesting in its own right. And kind of, um, and he also has a book called Lost Kingdom that really gets into a lot of the stuff that I, I was discussing at the beginning um, about uh, Ukraine's relations with Russia um, and the de- development of Russian imperial ideology towards Ukraine. So uh, those are two scholars uh, whose work I would definitely recommend that people check out if they want to know more. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Professor Hutchinson, for shedding some light on this current crisis and the historical roots that may have led to the situation. And for me, I think a theme that really ran through our talk were the paradoxes of war, because with how Russia is actually bombing places where they're supposedly liberating, where it's the leaders waging war when it's really the consequences are felt by the soldiers on the ground and the everyday citizens, as well as how on a slightly brighter note, even though it's destroying a lot of things, it's uniting people such as uniting the community in Ukraine to stand up against an enemy with so much more power, the hegemon of that region and inspire people such as President Zelensky making that decision to stay and fight, even though he's target number one and had a way out immediately. Yeah, it's been really, um, it's been really amazing to see the resistance of um, the Ukrainian people. And, and uh, yeah, I wish them all the best. Oh, well, hopefully Kasparov is wrong in that this never escalates to another a peaceful resolution to this this conflict, which in my view should never have been a military conflict in the first place. 
Well, once again, thank you, Professor Hutchinson, for taking this time to hop on this podcast. I truly appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for being a great host and uh, for your interest in this issue. Well, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History for Two. Please share this podcast with your friends and tune in for other episodes. You can also find full video episodes on the website www.history42.com.